The sermon text this morning will be Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 16, and verses 33 through 40. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all those who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you. O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, the trumpet, and the Abizrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, Then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. You know, one of the 
the greater pastoral struggles is helping people deal with uh, the besetting sins, the sins that we commit over and over and time and time again. It's, um, it's things that we don't talk about as much. We, we lament them. Um, I'm sure you can understand what I'm speaking about. If you struggle with anger and you don't seem to be able to get over the anger, you keep giving way to it, or lust, you, you don't want to uh, look at pornography, but you do time and time again, or envy, or rivalry. And, and the pastoral question is, you know, will God abandon me? Will God leave me? How do I understand the faith and this forgiveness that's offered, and yet I keep walking in the same sin over and over and over again? And, and how do we reconcile that with the forgiveness that we have? Well, when we look at this book of Judges, um, we've met some interesting characters, you know, a left-handed assassin, you know, Ehud. We've met uh, Deborah and Barak in terms of kind of this tag team on destroying the Canaanite military. And we have some fascinating stories with Gideon, as you've read and heard, and we have Samson coming up. Uh, but the real story of the book of Judges is, is really not the judges. It's about God. It, it's... It's this story of a God who continues to pursue people who repeat the same sins over and over and over again. It, it shows this incredible grace that is frankly hard for us to understand of how God can continue to seek a wandering people, a people prone to give way to their own lusts and desires, and yet God continues to pursue this intentional, dogged pursuit to save a people that he has called for his own glory. It's really not about the judges at all. You know, the author of, of this book never wanted us, I don't think, to do character sketches on on the judges, but this is who God is working through the judge. The judge is just a conduit of the incredible mercy of God. Uh, so I want to look at Gideon a little differently. I want to look at the fact of how does God retrieve a people to himself? How does God pursue a sinful people? How does God continue to bring revival to a people like us? That by Monday afternoon, we're wondering, God, am I saved? I'm doing the same thing over and over. God, will you deliver me? And we see a picture of a God who will deliver. I love that last song we sang, grace, just the marvelous grace. We, we don't get it, but this kind of story helps us see God's marvelous grace. So there's three movements in the text. The first is that God will discipline his sinning children. He does. He chastises those whom he knows and loves. So God will bring discipline, to a loving discipline, but it's discipline. And then God will bring conviction over the sins that we do commit. He, he's going to give us a taste of what we're doing so, so that we would turn back to him. And then he's going to save us. He will commit to save us entirely. So we'll see the text kind of in these three movements. First, though, uh, you see that he does chastise, he does discipline. Look again at verses 1 through 6. People of Israel did evil, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel because Midian, the people of Israel, made 
uh, because the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and Malachites and the people of the east would come against them, they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep, no ox, no donkey. They would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would be like no locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land they came in, and Israel was brought very low because of Midian. So here we have a picture of, of God bringing discipline. Now, God bringing discipline to the people, this isn't a shocker for you. You've, you've heard me say this over the past number of sermons and judges. But it, it does kind of still startle us that after this great victory of Barak and Deborah destroying a mechanized army, that they're back at it again. I mean, they're back at it again. For the fourth time, even they, though they had peace for 40 years, for the fourth time, they again did what was evil instead of God. Now, you know what that phrase is. It's a phrase used throughout the book, and it just means that they forgot God and they pursued idols. Now, when I say they forgot God, I don't mean to think that all the knowledge of God in their head was somehow evaporated. To forget God means simply this, that you're living your life as if you had forgotten God, as if it didn't matter. You, you, you may have God on a category. You may have him on a Sunday. <clears throat> you may have him compartmentalized in part of your life. But when you go to the office, I don't know that you know God by the way you live and speak and act or the way you handle your marriage. I don't see that you know God. You seem to have forgotten him if you've known him. So it's about a people who were religious, but they were not in love with God. It's like a lot of us, frankly. We know about God, but by our lives and by the way the choices we make, the lives we live, it's as if we've forgotten them. That's what it means to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And here they are doing that again. Well, God loves his people, and he will not remain silent and uninvolved. So he moves with oppression, this Midianite army. Now, we read about this oppression. This is the worst so far. I mean, they're hiding in caves. They're trying to protect their food. So the Midianites were different than in Ehud. Remember, they had an occupational force in Israel that he drove out. But here, they're not looking to occupy Israel. They're not looking to change their politics. They're just exploiting the land. They're coming in with their troops, and they're devouring all the food. They're taking all the food. Can you imagine always being hungry, always trying to hide your food? And they didn't just take the food. They took the ox and the donkey and the sheep. They took those animals that helped plow the fields to produce the food. So it's like stealing a mechanic's tools. <clears throat> Can you imagine how that would feel? Always worried, always frightful. These Midianites, of course, were descendants of Abraham. They were not favorable to Israel. And they joined forces with these Amalekites and these people from the east. So it was, a, it was a force that could not be counted. And they would come in and clean it out like locusts on a field. <clears throat> now, if you were to read this story and you were to say, well, they made some bad decisions and bad decisions have bad consequences, that would not be a moralism that I'd pull out of this. Because it says the Lord gave them over. So God is involved. God had warned them in Deuteronomy 28. He gave them blessings and curses. He said, if you listen to my voice and if you walk in my word, 
then these will be the results. If you don't, these will be the results. It's not, a, it's not salvation by works. God's just warning his people that if you forget about me and you pursue other gods, the repercussions will be significant. But it's the Lord's doing, I want you to say. So let me stop here for a minute. So you see the chastising hand of God on his people. Now, what it reminds us is simply this. Number one, that our sins often follow our blessings. Do you notice how this keeps happening? You know, that God brings peace through a judge, and they enjoy prosperity and shalom and peace. And what happens to the heart of the people? They begin to wander. They begin to move to God's that of the people that they're living with, just as God warned. Uh, this happens time and time again, that they forget about the Lord their God. But it's interesting, it seems to follow more in times of prosperity does, than in times of suffering. Suffering actually tends to drive us to God. But times of prosperity are more deceptive. Those blessings that we receive, they actually become the instruments that lead us away from God. Uh, you've seen it happen in people's life. Maybe their status in life increases. They get raised quickly up the corporate ladder. Maybe their income increases. Their businesses succeed. Maybe their popularity grows. And all these things begin to then, they begin to forget about God. God becomes less and less important. In other words, as they increase in stature or popularity or success, they begin to find their identity no longer in God, but in the things that they're growing in, even though God's giving them the blessings. This is the heart of idolatry. We begin to then find value, meaning, and significance in how we're doing. And we forget about the Lord our God. You know, one of the Puritans once said that God's greatest blessings are often his refusals. What he refuses from us, the success, the health, the pleasure, that, that sometimes that's his greatest blessing to us because it keeps us dependent and we are not distracted from the great blessings that can lead us away from God. So be warned. This is a challenge to us. It ought to really humble us, particularly those of us who have succeeded in the things that we put our hands to, that oftentimes it's a real pathway to forgetting the Lord your God. You don't forget about him in your mind, but he just has less and less and less and less of an influence as you're enjoying the success you have. It's a warning to us. But then secondly, you see that our sins have a spiraling effect. Not just a cycling effect. They, we do see the cycles of sin, and that's self-evident in our lives. Those of us who struggle with anger, we tend to continue to struggle with anger, or lust, or envy, or harshness. But you see that sins don't just cycle, they spiral. They, they seem to get deeper and deeper. You know, it's an amazing thing about humanity. We can accomplish so much. We can find such success. We can invent and develop and, and, and it seems like humans have such rich potential. And yet there's that dark underbelly that all of us have. That all that, all that potential that God has given to us, it, it can really go inward and selfward and self-destructive. You see it time and time again. You see it in the book of Judges. Do you notice how with each judge we're looking at, they seem to fall further and further and further? All the way from Othniel all the way to Samson. Samson's a train wreck. I, I, even the judges are sliding down. Not just the judges, the people. The people start out distracted. They're forgetting God. By the end of Judges, it's going to be an all-out civil war among the people of God. You, you see the spiraling effect going downward. 
Sin doesn't keep its place. It wants more of you. It wants more territory. And it keeps moving in greater and greater measure. And the last thing I would say just about God's chastising hand is he will bring sin or he will bring consequences to your sin. He will do this. Now, I've repeatedly said that every trouble we have is not related to a specific sin. We know that Jesus did not have any sin, and yet he suffered. But I don't want us to lose the connection that some of our suffering is caused by our sin. So, for example, uh, the, the person that is facing economic woes, financial troubles, for many, it's caused by, they want to keep up with the Joneses. They want newer. They want bigger. They want better. They overspend, and they find themselves in financial straits. Or situations such as, I don't have a lot of good friends. But it may be because you can't deal with your anger. You don't extend forgiveness. You don't resolve conflict. Or the person says, well, I don't have the marital intimacy that I want in my marriage. Well, it's because you're still dabbling in pornography. Or you're selfish in terms of your own marital care for your spouse. You know, so there is a connection there. And what God does is he, he uses the consequences to wake us up, like an alarm clock or smelling salts, to rouse us. Hey, if these are the gods that you're pursuing, let me let you dine on them fully. And, and let me let you get sick of them that you might turn back. So the psalmist in 119, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. In other words, before he wasn't afflicted, he went astray, he became afflicted, now he keeps his word. That's what God will often do with us, like a good parent. I mean, what parent among us just endures the misdeeds of his children without caring? No, we engage our children in their misdeeds, so God does us. So I know you may have come here and you're thinking, why? I, I need to be delivered from my struggles, and I need to be helped in these things, and I need to be given greater grace in these things. But the grace of God for you may be today just stopping and asking. Whatever your struggles are, God, am I out of line with your word? It may be something to ask yourself in terms of your marriage or your parenting or your financing. God, am I walking in a manner worthy of your name? It doesn't mean this applies to every single one of you, but it does beg the question, God, are you working your loving discipline into my life? And if you need help with this, ask a friend or ask a spouse to weigh in with you. Look at my life. We will never fail being temporally introspective about the nature of our lives when we're in trouble. I think it calls us to pay attention. So, so the first thing we see is God chastises those whom he loves. But then secondly, God brings conviction to those whom he loves. Look at the interesting feature here. It's a surprise for us in the text. When you look at verse 7, look at 7, he says, When the people of Israel cried out to God on account of the Midianites, we've heard that before with other nations, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Now the shocking thing here is they cried out to the Lord. God does listen to the cries of his people, but what's happened in the past is they cry out to the Lord and God sends a Savior to save them. 
He doesn't send a savior. He sends a, a preacher. He doesn't send deliverance, but he delivers a message to him. So God, differently now, sends a preacher to preach to them. Now, clearly, they were not looking for this, and they didn't want this. They want deliverance. We want relief from the pain. Whether it's a pin pill, a new... Just tell me what I need to do to take the pain away. But God sees their issues as deeper. The oppression of the Midianites was just the outward result of an inward dilemma. And so he sends a preacher. Notice what the preacher does. The preacher does two things. He upholds the grace of God. He says, look, look with me. He says, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. I drove them out before you. I am the Lord your God. You know, he's given grace, grace, grace. This is all that God is and all that God has done. And then he chides them for moving back into idolatry and for not obeying the voice of God. What God is doing is he sends a preacher to help the people see that the problems they're having because of their own idolatry. God's giving them the why to the struggles they're facing. God is helping them through a preacher saying, the reason that you're out of sync is because you're out of sync with God. So what you see here clearly is that God does not diagnose our problems like we do. Naturally, we want removal from the issues of life. But God is showing us that there's something deeper at play. God's showing us the nature, the fundamental nature of the struggles of our life and our world is the nature of sin. Not always directly our specific sin, but the sins of the world, the sins of our culture. But do you see the role of preaching here? He does two things. God convicts before he confronts. So God convicts them with a preacher. He has this preacher come and preach to them as I preach to you. Now, you notice that he is calling them to repentance. Now, the Israelites didn't repent. They did regret. They, they weren't happy with the circumstances. But regret and repentance are totally different. Regret is kind of a worldly sorrow. I feel bad about the consequences I'm in. I feel bad about the things I've done to hurt other people. But regret never brings about any change. Regret is about me and how I feel or the trouble I'm under. A lot of everybody, the, the world regrets when they do something stupid or foolish or harmful. But regret doesn't bring change because regret is focused on the consequences of the sin. Repentance is different. Repentance brings change because repentance is more than regret. Repentance sees that I've sinned against God. I've offended God. I'm not just looking at the consequences, but I'm looking at the consequences against God. Repentance brings change. It brings restoration. So you can ask yourself, when you're in a dire strait or you're in trouble, you're in a, in a struggle, you, you can say, why do I feel bad right now? D am I just regretful over the consequences that people are facing because of my sin? Or do I actually feel as though I have grieved God, the one who's loved me, the one who's been gracious to me? That's the difference between the two. You know, when you come on Sunday, part of the reason you come every Sunday is because the word of God has been given to us to get us back, to bend us back to God's way. 
You're hearing the truth of God. This is why I strive so hard to get the text right, because I'm trying to open up your lives to the Word of God so the Word of God is like a mirror to you. And you can see, oh, boy, you know, I'm, going, I'm going this way when I'm supposed to go this way. And week after week, you're having the Word applied to your soul. So each week you're making adjustments and tweaking and adjusting your life, the way you're handling your marriage, the way you're handling your finances, the way you're reconciling your conflict. That's why we always tell you the week before communion, resolve your conflict so you can come to the table in the right manner. We're calling you to bend your will to the will of God. That's where true joy and lasting happiness will be. Is that why you come on Sunday? But I don't want you just to come to be convicted. I do want you to be comforted. I, I want you to hear about this marvelous grace of God. That's why we're not talking about Gideon. We're talking about God. Because God is gracious to pursue sinners like us. He's gracious. I, we want to hold God up. So you see him in his beauty and glory. So that your obedience to him is borne out by affection. Not by duty. That you see him and his, his marvelous grace and you're like, why am I pursuing the trinkets and the shiny objects of this world? The affirmation of people or, or, or financial security or having more friends. Those are shiny trinkets compared to enjoying the glory of God. So we want to both convict and comfort. So God, how does he retrieve a people? How does he renew life in people? He chastises them for their sin gently, lovingly, like a good father. And then he convicts them so that they would see the idolatry of their ways and they'd be drawn back to one who is better, far better. But then notice what he does. He moves with grace in saving them. And notice that he's moving with grace before they have actually repented. And this is where we get the call of Gideon here. Look with me back at 11. He says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat on the turbine at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abravite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And were are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did the Lord not bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midian, Midianites as one man. This is really interesting here. I, I want you to see how salvation is going to come through the call of God. God calls Midian now. He's in a wine press. A wine press is kind of a, a hole in the ground that you would put grapes and you would step on to produce wine. And he's threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, to you non-agrarian types, this is not normal. What you normally do is thresh wheat in the open air. You throw it up in the air so the wind blows the chaff away, the, the shell of it, and the kernel falls down to the ground. And now, why is he not doing that in the open air? Well, he's scared of the Midianites. I mean, can you imagine? They must be so close that he can't even throw wheat into the air. So they must be close. He's hunkered down. He's just doing it to try to beat out some grain for a meal. And this is when this angel of the Lord comes and says to him, 
O mighty man of valor, the Lord is with you. Now, before you begin to question the perceptiveness of this angel, it's like, almost like he's Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, really? O mighty man of valor, as he's hunkered down, not even walking in the, in the fear of the Lord, but he's walking in the fear of man? Who is this angel of the Lord? Well, we already met the angel of the Lord in chapter 2 when he was equated with Yahweh, God himself. And you see that this angel of the Lord is the same. Yahweh, because in verses 14 and 16, it says the Lord said, and the Lord's in all caps. This is Yahweh speaking. So here, what ought to arrest you is Yahweh himself has come down to call Gideon while he's in the midst of his own fear of the Midianites. He's not walking in bold faith or courage. He's in fear. And he calls Midian to save the people of Israel. God is going to save his people through the weakness of this servant. But, but um, Gideon continues on. He, he says, he begins to question God. I, I mean, he objects to God. He says, well, you know, why has everything happened like it has? And why aren't you doing the stuff like you did in Israel? And why is it like this? And then he doesn't just question God's ability but he also questioned God's wisdom. Why? I'm the weakest clan. I'm the least in the family. I mean, he's going toe-to-toe with the angel of the Lord over why he's not worthy of it. And God goes back to him, and he says to him, he says that, go in this might of yours and save Israel. What's, what's God doing here? You know, a lot of commentators think that God's being sarcastic. You know, oh, mighty man of valor as he's hunkered down in a wine press. I agree with the commentators who would say, no, uh, what God is doing is he is looking at Gideon as he will be by the grace of God. He's looking at what Gideon will become because of the grace of God. So we see Gideon here kind of falter in this call. But you don't just see the call, you don't just see salvation in the call of God, you see salvation in the grace of God. As the story goes on, Gideon says to the angel of the Lord, oh, wait here until I prepare an offering. And so Gideon goes and prepares an offering. Now, he's saying this because he wants to confirm whether this angel of the Lord is actually Yahweh or not. He wants to prepare an offering. Now, preparing an offering, I want you to know, is not taking a TV out of the refrigerator in the tent and popping it in the microwave and bringing a meal to him in 20 minutes. You've got to find the animal. You've got to kill the animal. You've got to prepare the animal. You've got to cook the animal. And then you bring the animal. It's a multi-hour process. And it says Yahweh waited for him. Sitting, waiting. Uh, we don't have time to wait. We're, we're moving on the eye. Yahweh waited for him the grace of God to wait for him he brings the offering and of course Yahweh touches the rock the fire consumes the sacrifice confirming to Gideon that the angel of the Lord is Yahweh because he says I've seen God now I'm not going to live and God of course confers peace to him so God is patient with Gideon and then he commissions Gideon he tells Gideon to take down the idols in his father's backyard which he does at night now before you kick him out to the curb because he failed again, I just want you to know Gideon was obedient. It was mixed with fear, and it was, it was a faltering faith, but so is ours. How often are we trying to be? He was obedient. He wasn't heroic, but he was obedient. And then God, of course, clothes him with the Spirit. He calls the tribes of Israel, 
and they're going to gather together against the Midianites, and that's going to come next week. But I want you to see that even after Gideon had, been, had heard the word of God from the prophet, he was clothed with the Spirit of God, he yet again says, I need another sign. And of course, this is the fleece story, right? He puts out the fleece, hey, let it be wet, let the ground be dry, it happens. And the, he's probably thinks, oh, that was stupid. Let me do it the other way, because of course the, the moisture will remain in a fleece longer than it does in the ground. When the sun comes out, the ground heats up and, and drinks the moisture. He says, God, will you do it the other way? And by God's grace, he does, to confirm to him that, yes, he will have the power to do this. So, so we have this, we have this um, chastising of the people, leading to conviction, but it leads to their salvation. Now let me try to draw out some takeaways from this call of Gideon for you, as I have in these other first two points. Do you see that it's simply crying out to God that saves us? God heard the cries of his people. Even though the people were sinful, they hadn't come to a full recognition of the nature of their sin, and he, he heard them, and he responded before they've come to a full recognition. You know, in other words, if you think that you've got to get all the mess in your life cleaned up before you cry out to God, you're missing the entire point of the passage. Your life right now can be in deep trouble. Maybe you're under heavy circumstances. The text would speak to you to say, call out to him. Cry out to him. You say, but I'm still in the midst of pornography. I'm still in the midst of massive financial ruin. I'm still in the midst of marital confusion. Cry out to him. That's the point of the passage. That's his mercy that goes beyond our understanding. This is a New Testament theme. It's not just the Old Testament. You know, Paul writes in Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ died for us while we were sinners. He didn't wait for us to kind of get partway there or to show potential. You have to see, this is the mind-bending part of God here. Because we don't behave this way to one another, and we just project upon God that he behaves in the way to us that we do to others. You are not God, nor am I. You know, when Jesus gave that parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee that went into the temple, and the Pharisee goes in and he's saying, thank God I'm not like all these other people. But there's a tax collector in the back. He's crying out to God. He doesn't even look up at God because he's afraid to. And he's beating his chest. Remember what he says? Have mercy on me, a sinner. He knows he's a sinner. And, but he's still crying out to God. He's not trying to get less of a sinner and then cry out to God. He cries out to God in the midst of his sin. That's why at the beginning of the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To know, the, to know that we're sinners and we need to cry out. Here's the confidence. Uh, Paul even says in Romans chapter 10, all those who call upon the Lord, they won't be disappointed. So if you're pressed down hard right now, call out to God, ask him for grace, ask him for mercy, ask him for faith to walk in a measure that he calls you to walk. So we see first that God saves us as we cry out to him, as we cry out to him. But secondly, God saves us through the weakness of others. This is where Gideon's kind of our poster boy of weakness. When you look at Gideon, you know, there is just failure after failure in faith, right? There is, he doesn't have many credentials. He doesn't have much courage. His faith is failing. A God calls him, but he objects to the call. God assures him that he'll be with him, 
But, but he then asks for a sign. God gives him a sign. He asks for another sign. I mean, Gideon is going back and forth and back and forth with God. Do you see that God doesn't look upon us by outward appearances? God looks at us, not where we are right now, but where we will be by his grace. God is in the process of changing us. God is, you know, the essential ingredient for the servant of God is weakness for us. But we hide our weaknesses. It's like them growing up in the dens and hiding. We want to hide our weaknesses. And yet Jesus says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. So these past few weeks and next week again, I'm going to keep calling you. Identify your weakness. Hold it up to God. Use me in my weakness. Because that displays greater glory. As he, and that's what he's doing with Gideon. Gideon isn't someone we want to follow. Gideon is somebody we want to see and say, that's the kind of God we have to take someone this week and do great things. And that's what God wants to do with us, frankly. We'd say, well, I can't teach, so I, I didn't, shouldn't take that class. And I'm really terrified to leave the area here, and I don't want to go into missions, or I, I, I don't work well with kids, or... I don't have all the Bible answers, and so we take ourselves out of ministries, and, and if you're weak in this area, jump in it by God's grace. But God saves us and others through weaknesses. And then, and then thirdly, you see uh, that we're called to not, te well, yeah, to not test the Lord. We don't want to test the Lord. This is where the fleece thing comes in. That we often kind of use this fleece thing where, you know, I'm going to put out a fleece, I have a decision to make, I've got some future decision to make, and I'm going to put out a fleece and God's going to give me some direction as to what I should do. So, so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to, you know, should I marry this girl or should I buy this car? I don't see this as morally equivalent, just for the record. But just two examples. Should, should I buy the car? And if God does this or if God does this, then I'll do it. Well, if you feel, I, I would encourage you, if you're doing that, stop doing that. Just don't do that. Now, don't feel hurt by that. I've done that a thousand times. I've stopped doing that. What's happening here? Well, I think Gideon knows he's walking on thin ice by asking these signs of God because in 39 he says, please don't be angry with me. So you know he's getting on thin ice. What's Gideon doing here? I think Gideon is not looking for directional wisdom from God I think he's looking for confirmation as to what he knows he needs to do. Because you notice in 36, he says this. He says, and Gideon said, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So he knows he's been called to defeat the Midianites. But he is weak in faith, and he needs to know that God has the power to do it. So he's not wondering what to do. Should I buy the car? Should I take the job? Should I move? Should I marry the girl? He's not wondering what to do. He's just flagging in faith over doing it. And that's really, it's really not an absence of faith. There's a caution or perhaps a faltering of faith. One author said it this way. Gideon was looking for a miraculous sign, not a circumstantial one. He's not asking what to do, but strength to do it. So, so we don't want to test God. And, and then fourth, we want to remember God. We want to remember God. So what I'm asking you to do, go back with me to the beginning. You know, forgetting God isn't, of course, losing your knowledge of God, but it's him having no impact on your life. Folks, we live in a rich land. You are successful people. 
The temptation for you will always be to find identity, value, meaning, and security in the things you're accomplishing and the things you're acquiring. Don't forget the Lord your God. Remember God. Look at your life. Are there things that are so attractive to you that are drawing you away from God? It may be, it may be money. It may be pleasure. It may be security. It may, it may be a thousand things. John Calvin said that we are idol manufacturers. We can produce them. So look at your life and repent. Don't forget the Lord your God. And then fifth, I would say rejoice in the deliverance that he brings. Now, this is really important because you're going to see next week again, or in two weeks, they, go, they again do evil in the sight of God. And so you're wondering, what's the purpose here? Well, there is a purpose to God. Remember, this deliverance that Gideon is going to bring next week, it really does point to a future deliverance. But I want to remind you, first it points to a previous deliverance. Gideon is a type of Moses. You probably saw that in the text. Gideon is like Moses. Just as Moses delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt from oppression and slavery, so Gideon's going to do it. Think about it for a minute. Uh, Moses had a confrontation with God, so did Gideon. Uh, Moses, he, he was called to lead a deliverance, so was Gideon. Uh, Moses objected to the call of God, so did Gideon. Moses asked for confirming signs, so did Gideon. Moses became somebody different than he was, so did Gideon. Moses was promised by God, I will be with you, so was Gideon. So what we're to see is God delivered the people, the greatest Old Testament deliverance, God delivers the people from the Exodus, and then Gideon is a type of Moses, but it points to something more, which is a deliverance that is coming in Christ. Now, the reason I say Christ is because when Christ was on the Mount of Transfiguration, he was there with Moses and Elijah, representative of the law and the prophets. So all the Old Testament is finding its summation in Christ. And when he's with them, he says this. Jesus says, two men were recorded, Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The word departure is exodus. Jesus is saying, I'm leading an exodus, and it's going to be accomplished in Jerusalem. And the exodus that Jesus Christ was leading wasn't from the temporal oppression of some surrounding nation. It's leading us out of sin and alienation from God through his own death that he will accomplish. He is the deliverer. He is the judge. And only he can give us rest. Your rest is in, is in him. So let this remind us of the deliverance that's coming, that has come for us, that we now can rest in. Our rest is to be in him, not in the things of this world. And then last, the, the salvation of God in the call of Gideon gives us courage. It gives us courage. You know, many of us Christians, and you're reading blog posts, Christians are very worried about the culture. They're worried about the direction of the government. They're worried about the marginalization and the, and the kind of the, the antagonism towards those of faith. And we just think, you know what, if we get a, a government going in a different direction, we get more of a moral culture going, then we're going to be in good shape. No, we're not. You see, time and time again, the culture is reformed, they go back and did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's reformed, they go back and do evil in the sight of the Lord. The, the courage that we have is not a change of government, not a change of culture. The courage is, he says, I'll be with you. 
I'll be with you. He says it in 12, verse 12. He says it in 14, do I not send you? And in 16, I will be with you. It's the promise of God never leaving us nor forsake us that can make us courageous to live in this culture for the glory of God. You know, the, the theme of God's being with us, it's a beautiful theme in Genesis 2. They dwelt with God in the cool of the day. Of course, we lose that in sin in Genesis chapter 3. And then the rest of the story is God drawing near us in the tabernacle as they go through the wilderness, in the temple when they're in Israel. But then Jesus comes, and what's his name? Emmanuel, God with us. And yet he was only with us in person at one place at one time. But then he says, I'm going to go away. Another comfort is going to come. Now the Spirit of God was clothed Gideon now dwells within us. And the Spirit of God mediates the presence of Christ with us. So now we can be bold. And it's interesting that Jesus said to his disciples when he sent them, he says, go into all the world. You don't have to fear any nation. Go into all the world, making disciples, baptizing, teaching. And lo, I will be what? With you always. It's the presence of God again. So our hope in this life is that God will never leave us nor forsake us. This is what we're to be clinging to, not some external change of environment that we have. It's his presence that we rest. He will be with us. When you go out this week and you're tempted to not say anything about the glory of Christ, say it. He's with you. When you're, when you're struggling with overcoming sin, walk in faithfulness. He's with you. He will empower you. He will strengthen you to walk in a manner worthy of his great name. We have a great God, incredible God, who, who, who will gently chastise us, who will open our eyes to the nature of our sin that we may move forward back into faith, and who will save us. Time and time again, we fall into the same sin. He will save you. He will come after you. Don't forsake the Lord. Don't forget the Lord. He will save us. Let's take a moment and just ask for God's grace. Ask him, friends, to either convict you of what you need to repent of. Ask him to comfort you in his marvelous grace. And then I'll pray for us in a moment.